turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the 78th Psalm. Psalm 78. The book of Psalms is located in the Old Testament. A third of the way through your Bible, almost halfway through your Bible, look at Psalm 78. I mentioned earlier that we were going to take a step back out of Matthew. We just got back into it, but the pastors and I just talked this week, and, and primarily Matt and I spent time together, I guess, on, on Monday of last week, just thinking about where we are and our responsibility and our calling as a church to pass on the gospel and the, the faith, the, the works of our great God on to the next generation. And we, we just were of one mind and, and felt the Lord leading us to spend a time in Psalm 78 this week. And next week, Dr. Bruce Ware will be here to, again, re- return to Psalm 78, somewhat of a, a two-part series, you might say, uh, with he and I. We do this today because... We have an important calling as families, as parents, but as a church to the next generation. And it's one that is heavy with weight. It's great with responsibility. It's it's no secret that we live in a day that holds numerous challenges, great challenges, great difficulties for us in raising up young people who love the Lord, who follow the Lord and hold to a biblical worldview. Families are faced today with situations and circumstances and decisions and challenges that in many cases would have seemed unheard of just years ago. It's it's indeed the, the same sin at root. There's nothing new under the sun, the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us. But while there's nothing new under the sun and it's the same root, or same sin at root, these sins are packaged differently and, and come with different temptations and, and they look different. And so we have to be aware of that. We have to raise this generation to trust our great God. But the reality is if we just follow statistics and we just look at statistics, the rising generation shows fewer numbers of those who would hold to a biblical worldview than any generation before it. And I think if we're honest, adults, if we're honest, that should call us to look in the mirror before it does to indict that generation. They are our responsibility. We can't just look down and ask, what's wrong with you? We need to look in the mirror and ask, what's wrong with us? Adults, this is a calling for us, whether you're a single, whether you're a grandparent, whether you're a newlywed, whether you're like myself and in the midst of kids of every age. It's a calling for us to pass on the gospel to the next generation, a generation that hears many, many mixed messages, messages such as truth is defined by the individual. Messages that elevate the expression of individualism as kind of the pinnacle, the greatest achievement when you can express your individualism. Messages that distort God's good design of of the, the home, of sexuality, of marriage, of gender itself. 
confusing messages that would say that authority is wrong, authority is bad, because some authority has been abused and all in authority abuse it. Mixed messages that twist views of justice, reconciliation. It's based on man's wisdom rather than God's truth and word. Mixed messages that would say that science can explain everything. Yet, interestingly enough, science itself is being rejected over feelings and one's self-definitions of identity. Mixed messages that your worth is based on how many people like something or repost something, follow you. Messages that deconstructing your faith is trendy, it's cool, it's what you should do. All of these messages lead the next generation down paths that are crowded. Ways that are wide. Ways that lead unto destruction. It's what our Lord warned us about in Matthew 7, 13, 14 when he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Are we leading the next generation on a wide path that leads to destruction? Or are we leading them in the narrow path that leads unto life? Thinking about these mixed messages is not an opportunity for us to lament and wail over the woes of our culture. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded of the responsibility we have, the importance of it, the urgency of it. So we turn to Psalm 78, and we're going to hear a call to remember that we are not called to just toss the gospel out and hope that our children and youth receive it. We're not called to just bring and drop them off, bring them and drop them off to church. We're called to pass on our faith. He call, he's called us, God has called us to do more than just drop our kids off, called us to do more than just teach them to be nice kids. He's called us to disciple a generation of believers who love him, who trust him. And we cannot afford, church, to sit back and neglect this responsibility. We can't afford to do it. Let's look at Psalm 78. Let me just read the first eight verses, and then we'll skim over and look at the rest of the psalm for the sake of time this morning. Join me in Psalm 78, verse 1. The word of the Lord says this, Give ear... O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast, 
whose spirit was not faithful to the Lord. We start in verses 1 through 3. We see the, the purpose and the goal of this psalm. And there in the first verse, we, we see that it's written by Asaph. You probably have a heading there, a mascal of Asaph. Asaph was a, a Levite, a, a leader in David's choirs. You see that in 1 Chronicles 6.39. He wrote 12 of our psalms in the book of Psalms. And we see the, the purpose and the goal of the psalm there. That In, in verse 1, we learn that it's written to the people. He says it's written to the people of God. This is an interesting psalm in that the, the psalms typically... There are psalms of prayer to God or praises to God, but, but this is neither of those. This is neither prayer nor praise. There's no request uttered in Psalm 78. Never in Psalm 78 does Asaph say, please God do this or please God do that. He doesn't necessarily even praise the Lord, but instead he's writing this psalm to the people. It's a call to hear and to heed his wisdom, his instruction that he writes to the, to the people. So we see in verse 2, it would, be, it would really be categorized as a, a historical wisdom psalm. A psalm that gives wisdom for today from the events of history. It's one that would, would be foundational for a, a passage like Romans 15.4 where, where Paul explains and, and shares that the passages of the Old Testament are written for our encouragement and our hope, that we might have hope. And so we are to learn from Psalm 78 that we might be encouraged by it, that we might have hope, that we might avoid the ills and the sins of the people. He, he says there in verse 2, he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. Th this word parable here, when, he's, when he uses it, it's the same word that, that Solomon uses in Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon. It's the same exact Hebrew word. And so this is a parable here, not because its content is a fictional story that's used to make a point, but because it is a historical story that he is using to teach a theological and an ethical truth to the people. So what Asaph does here in Psalm 78 is to take the events of history and set them before the people to say, you need to know and you need to glean wisdom and understanding to pass on the, the works of God to the future generations. And he calls them, what does he call them? These great triumphs of our people, these wonderful accomplishments, these wonderful victories that we've done. We're going to pass on all those good things that we want to be remembered for. No, what does he say? We're going to utter dark sayings of old. We're going to talk about our failures. We're going to talk about our rebellion. We're going to talk about the time that God's people spurned the Lord and rebelled against them. That's what Asaph is going to share. He's going to share the sinful rebellion of God's people all for one purpose, that this generation and the coming generations after them would not follow that same rebellion, that they would not be stiff-necked, that they would not spurn the Lord. Listen, this is an important principle for us in our day. Asaph is not trying to rewrite history. Asaph is not setting history aside and saying, let's just forget the ills of the past. Let's forget the sins of the past. No, Asaph says, here's the sins of the past. Now, learn from them and avoid them. Do not do it again. Learn from history. Don't try to ignore it. Don't try to rewrite it. But learn from it so that you do not repeat it. That's the message that we need to be speaking in our day. 
Not that everything in history was great. Not that everybody was fine. Not that, er- that people, these historical figures that you look to and you learn from, that you look to and go, oh, they were great. They never did anything wrong. No, they did. They were sinners just like us. They had blind spots like we do. And we should learn from them. Learn to have a greater love for the Lord in pursuit of Him. Some of the hardest conversations that I've had as a parent is when my kids ask me about something and I have no opportunity of telling them of something I did well. All I can tell them is things that I've done poorly. Those are hard conversations. But they're conversations that I hope my children can learn from. When I can sit down and say, Dad did this, don't do it. Dad chose that. Don't choose that. Pursue the Lord. Grow in the Lord. Learn from my mistakes. Don't make the same mistakes as I did. What I want us to do in the remainder of these verses in 4 through 8, Psalm 78, 4 through 8, I want us to look at four principles of ministry of the next generation. Four things that we learn from these passages, these verses that inform us of our responsibility and our calling as a church and as individual families for raising up the next generation to pursue him. Now, I want to make one thing clear as we do this. This is not a checklist of if I do this, then I get that. I think sometimes we fall into that. If I, if I do this, and as a parent or as a church, we do this, then we can just know that the next generation is going to just pursue the Lord. They're going to love the Lord. Well, many of us in here know that that's not always the case. We know that there are many times that we invest many hours and hours teaching and instructing and encouraging and praying for those in the next generation, whether it's our kids or those we care about or discipling. And at some point, They just spurn the Lord. It's no guarantee, but it's our calling. It's our responsibility. I can't guarantee anything about my four children 20 years from now. All I can do is do what God's called me to do and trust Him with the rest. All I can do is pursue Him and obediently walk in Him and do what He said to do. And pray fervently for my kids and hope that they will cling unto him. So let's look at what we find out in these verses. Number one, in verse four, we see that there is a community responsibility. There's a community responsibility in verse four. Look at what Asaph says. He says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds, his might, his wonders that he's done. This is a a call for the entire community of believers to tell the coming generation of our great God. It's given to the people as a whole. We read that in verse 1, and now in verse 4, he says, we will not hide them. There is a sense of resolve here. We have a responsibility to disciple the next generation. And when I say we, I mean we. And when we say the Grace Family Summit, we mean the Grace Family Summit. The reason is because we have a community responsibility to that. And so it is not just 
for parents. It is not just for husbands. It's not just for wives. It's for everyone seated in here that would call themselves and has covenanted together as a member of Grace Baptist. We have a collective responsibility to the next generation. So if you're a single, you have a responsibility to the next generation. You have a responsibility to disciple and encourage and spur them on and pray for them and minister to them. If you're a father, you have that same responsibility. If you're a mother, you have that same responsibility. If you're a grandparent, you have that same responsibility. We have a responsibility to the coming generation. We all have a role. And as a community of believers, it's beautiful in Scripture. We don't have time to go through all these, but it's just beautiful in Scripture to see how God structures and designs the rhythms of the community of believers to pass on the faith to the next generation. We see this in, in instances like Exodus 12 where, where the instructions for the Passover are given. And the reason that's given, we learn, is that so that when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our houses. The, the, the purpose of that was that they would gather together so that when the children asked, not if, but they would do so in a way that the children are gathered and they're among them and they're taking part in the things with the community. That's one reason that we do things a little different here at Grace. We do have children in our service. And there will not be a day where we have a separate youth service. It's not going to happen. When we gather on a Sunday morning, it's for the community of believers. Because we want the next generation standing beside the generations ahead. I've treasured, I've told you this before, I've treasured for years and years and years knowing that my children have grown up, and they've grown up singing shoulder to shoulder with senior adults who have gone through so much in life, and they've clung to the Lord, they've followed the Lord, they're faithful to the Lord. They've seen His faithfulness to them, even when they've failed and they've stumbled or they've rebelled, they've seen His faithfulness, His mercy and grace. And so I know that my children stand there and they sing and they worship shoulder to shoulder. You know what that means Practically. It means that there are times where we bow and we say, let's pray, and we pray, and all of a sudden you hear, Wah! and you hear a scream. Praise the Lord. If that bothers you, I'm sorry. You know what it should be? It should be a reminder that we have a responsibility to the next generation. Is it ever distracting to me? Yes. At times. But I get over it. Why? Because I want those children. Praise the Lord. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> She's just smiling. <laughs> Bouncing her baby. Praise the Lord. Because it's a little one that's being instructed in the Lord. It's a little one that is full of energy and excitement and they're scrambling all over the place. But Matt and I were laughing this week about how you wrestle and you fight and you struggle as a parent. There's times where you come out and you're like, whew. And then all of a sudden, as a parent, you're just sitting there and it's like, they're taking notes. When did that happen? Like, whoa. That's the kid that was like climbing all over my head and pulling my beard a few years ago. Praise the Lord. We have a community responsibility. To raise up the next generation. Sometimes it looks messy. But it's a beautiful mess. And I'm thankful for it. 
Asaph is calling us to that responsibility here. It's the same thing that in Joshua 4, 21, when they, when they set up, do you remember in Joshua 4, they set up the, the 12 stones, they crossed the river. Do you remember this, right? Why did they do that? Well, it was so that when your children ask, what do these stones mean? When they ask, what do these stones mean? You can let them know what God did. You can let them know. That's what it means. It's an opportunity for you to teach your children. Dad, why do we do the Lord's Supper? Let me tell you why. Dad, why do we sing this? Let me tell you. Why do we listen and turn in our scriptures when the pastor preaches and speaks? Let me tell you why. It's opportunities to tell the next generation. Asaph is very aware that it's not all rosy. It's not all perfect. Dad, why were you crying in that song? Mom, why were you weeping? Let me tell you. Because life is hard. Because there's times where Dad's faith is very weak. There's times where dad looks back and remembers his sins. But I weep over God's grace. And I rejoice and I rest in God's grace. I'm reminded that every glimpse of my sin and my failure is a glimpse and a reminder and a big billboard of God's mercy and grace. Brings me to weep at times. It's what Asaph does. Look just with me, just briefly. Look at, look at verse 9. He gets into verse 9. He says, listen, in verse 8, he called him a, a, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful. And he doesn't just leave it to that and then go, hmm, I wonder what that looked like. He says, let me show you how that is. The, the Ephraimites, the leading tribe of the northern kingdom, he says they turned their back on the day of battle. They did not remain steadfast. No, they, they forgot his works in verse 11. The, the works that, that God did. He goes through verses 12 through 16. He, he talks about these magnificent, incredible wonders and works of the Lord. Yet they turned their back on him. They forgot those things. Verse 17, it says, yet they sinned all the more. They rebelled against him. They tested him. They demanded from him. They spoke against him. This, this people that saw these wonderful things just rebelled against him. And so verse 21, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. The wrath that God comes upon them. Why? Verse 22, because they did not believe in God. They did not trust his saving power. Oh, the sins of the people. But the beauty of God's mercy in 23, yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. It's a display of God's mercy as he rains down on them manna to eat and gave them the grains of heaven. It's the mercy of God displayed. The mercy of God displayed. He goes on to talk about that, how God pours out his mercy. And then down in verse 32, he says, in spite of all this, they still sinned. So he made their days vanish like a breath. And he killed them in verse 34. In verse 35, they remembered that God was their rock. Oh, a good wake-up call. They remembered that the Most High God was their Redeemer. But what do they do? Here we go again. Verse 36. This is the same cycle we see in the book of Judges. The same cycle, right? 
In verse 36, same thing. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. They just started singing these nice songs that made him feel good. Oh, yeah, wow, okay, we're back there. Lord, we love you. You're the greatest. They're flattering him. That's all they're doing. Their heart's not steadfast. Yet he, talking about God, here's God's mercy and grace again. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. And you would think that then they would just cling unto the Lord. But oh no, verse 41, they tested God again and again. They provoked the Holy One of Israel. This is definitely one of those moments as a parent, you would say, please learn from my mistakes. Don't provoke the sovereign, almighty, omnipotent, Holy One of Israel. That's a bad idea, right? But they did it. They tested God again and again. They did not remember His power the day when He redeemed them from the foe. And so he goes on, verses 43 down to 55, and talks about the Exodus, how God redeemed them. The great works he had done, his might, his power. Surely they follow him. No. <laughs> Verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but they turned away and they act, acted treacherously like their fathers. They continue to spurn the Lord. They continue to turn from him. Verse 67, what does he do? He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But, but, God's grace and mercy. But, what does he do? He chooses the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah. The lion of Judah. Yes, he chooses the tribe of Judah. Verse 70, he chose David, his servant. He took him from the sheepfolds. What does he do? Asaph ends here with a note of hope and pointing them to God's grace and mercy in the midst of this people's rebellion and sin and acting treacherously to the Lord and forgetting him and neglecting him. In the midst of that, God shows his mercy and grace in raising up the Davidic line that would issue forth the Messiah, that the Messiah would come, the Lion of Judah would come forth and redeem his people. There is a message of hope there. Listen, Asaph shares this with the community to call them away from these things, away from this rebellion, away from this sin. He says, you might see here the prodigal, the, the parable of the prodigal nation, but you need to see the truth of the faithful, merciful, gracious God who saves. We see God's mercy. We see his patience. We see his kindness. We see his grace. Asaph is magnifying God's grace in the midst of their sin. Parents, adults, we need to do the same. We don't need to walk in here acting like we're perfect because we're not. We're sinners in need of God's grace every single day. So don't you dare walk in here like you're not a sinner in need of God's grace. We all are. And we all come and we all stand and we all sing and exalt him because he is gracious and merciful. He has saved us and he is sanctifying us Praise the Lord. And we want our children to see that. We want the young people to see that. Children, youth, the adults sitting in this room are imperfect sinners who've been saved by God's grace, who've gone through struggles you've gone through, who've gone through the rebellion you've gone through. You don't have to pretend that you're not going through it or you've never walked that route. We have. I've done things I'm ashamed of. I've done things I don't want to talk about from the pulpit. 
but I rest in God's grace and I rest in his forgiveness and his mercy. He's a great God and he sanctifies us and he grows us that we can look back and go, thanks be to God for your care and your kindness in my life. It's all of him. To God be the glory. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 17, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe for eternal life. Oh, that God would use us adults as examples. I'm so grateful for some of you in this room who are years older than I am. For moments you may or may not remember where you told me of times in your life where God just worked mercifully in you. Where God saved you. Where God pulled you out of rebellion when you were running from him you weren't pursuing him and he pursued you and brought new life to you and turned you around that you might trust him so grateful for that don't magnify you it causes me to magnify the lord to exalt his great name we church have a divine obligation to teach the next generation about our lord it's not a denominational distinctive it's not something that's trendy. It's not something that's just because of who we are as Grace Baptists. It is something that God has given us in his word. It's not based on our church size. It's not based on a ministry paradigm. It is based on whether or not we are going to be obedient to God's word. Will we pass on the faith to the next generation? Will we do it? That's the question. It's not do we have the obligation. Oh, we've got the obligation, church. The question is, will we feel that obligation? God's put it before us. We can't make excuses. There's a community responsibility. The second thing we see is in verse 5, there is a parental responsibility. There's a parental responsibility. 78 verse 5, he established the Lord. The Lord established the testimony in Jacob, the, the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. He appointed a law in Israel, the covenant law, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Listen, the reality that the community of believers has a responsibility to the next generation does not negate parental responsibility. It's important. God has instituted and designed both the church and the home. So parents, we don't have like this get-out-of-jail-free card where we go, oh, great, the community has a responsibility, so I'm going to go and just drop them off on a Wednesday night and let professional Matt take care of my kids so that they'll turn out right. We don't have this get-out-of-jail-free card where we just walk down the hall and go, hey, you jump in the room with the glass doors, you jump in the youth room, and everything will be squeaky clean when we go home for lunch. We don't just drop them off. There is a parental responsibility. A parental responsibility. It's what we heard read earlier from Deuteronomy 6, from Pastor Michael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the Shema, right? 
We're to love God wholeheartedly with all that we are. We're to love him. And he says, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They should be on your heart. Then you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. We have a parental responsibility to teach our children in the Lord. It's a calling we have as parents. It's a mighty calling, a great responsibility of all the things that we can get sidetracked on and focused on and work towards as parents, the one responsibility we can't neglect is to teach our kids about the Lord. Do you hear the the word that both Asaph and Moses uses? Command. The Lord has commanded. Moses, through Moses, he says, these words I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. In Psalm 78, 5, he it refers back to that, is that which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. It's why we looked at Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Parents, this is not optional. This is not for just serious Christians. It's not just for mature Christians who have grown up in the church. It's not just for people who have a theological education. You don't go to seminary to get a degree on how to teach your children about the Lord. Just do it. There's no requirement to being a perfect parent either. You're going to mess up. I do. If you have some delusion that I'm a perfect dad or husband, then you want my kids and wife will be available for comment after the sermon <laughs> I'm not right none of them are in disagreement right there look they're all smiling going mm-hmm. <laughs> you guys be gracious please all right. this is a simple command love God and teach your kids to do the same Love God and teach your kids to do the same. How do I do it? Well, how do you teach them to love Kentucky basketball? How do you teach them to handle finances well? How how do you teach them to enjoy deer hunting and fishing? How do you teach them to love running? To get up at unholy hours of the day to go run? I mean, we're really good educators of the things we love and care about. You teach them to love the Lord the same way you teach them to love all those other things. We can't overcomplicate it. We can't overcomplicate it. The third thing we see here in verse 4 and 5, there is a specific content for our teaching. A specific content for our teaching. Look at verse 4, we began the day with this. What do we teach them? We teach them the glorious deeds of the Lord, His might and the wonders He has done. We teach them that He has established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel. He commanded our fathers to teach our children. There's five things he points out there. We're to teach glorious deeds, his might, the wonders he has done, the testimony, and the law. 
essentially, if you want this boiled down to just something easy to remember, we are to teach our children the works of the Lord and the word of the Lord. The works and the word of the Lord. Or George Swinnock said it this way. He said, teach them his doings as well as his sayings. So first we declare the mighty works and wonders that the Lord has done. We teach them that our God is no idle God confined to a dusty old book that sits on the coffee table that we never pick up. If we do pick it up, we just bring it on Sunday morning. No, he is not that God. That's for some vain religion, an empty religion. We teach them that the God we serve is active, he is living, he is mighty, he reigns, he is ascended unto heaven, and he rules over all things as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has done mighty things, and he is doing mighty things, and he will continue doing mighty things. That is what we teach our children. We teach them that he is providentially working in all circumstances, through all circumstances, the good and the bad. We teach him that he's providentially working through the failures and the successes of our lives, the things that come into our life that we would never choose, that we don't want, we didn't invite in, that God is providentially, sovereignly working in that to bring about good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We teach them of the mighty works of our God. We teach them of the times that he answers prayers the times that he answers them in the way that we asked for and the times that he answers them in a way that was way beyond what we asked for and the time in his great mercy and grace, he did not give us what we asked for but said, no, praise the Lord for those days. We teach him of all of those things. We teach him the truths of Scripture by learning Scripture, by singing Scripture. That's why we sing what we sing. Because the content declares the mighty works of the Lord. Don't merely teach rules of the Lord, just things to do or not do. Teach the works of the Lord. Teach about the time where, where God healed your friend of cancer. Te- teach about the, the moment that God comforted you as you grieved your father's death and you didn't know how you would make it to the next day. You didn't even want to go to sleep because you didn't want to wake up the next day. But God is the God of all comfort. Teach them about the time where you had no idea what to do in that situation. There was, there was no wisdom to be found by anyone you talked to, and you prayed for the Lord to give wisdom. You prayed for the Lord to manifest truth, to bring about truth, and he did. Teach them about the time that God changed your life and you were saved. Have you shared your testimony with your kids? Teach them how God works. But we also, secondly, we teach them the Word of God. Because it's in the Word of God that we learn the character of God, the testimony of what He's done throughout history, the will of the Lord. We learn that salvation comes from Him. We need to teach them the Word that the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119. It was the longest chapter in all Scripture, and it's simply a love poem to the Scriptures. Magnifies the Word. We teach them the word that, that David said in Psalm 19 leads them to know the, and get, know the word. That it gives life. It gives wisdom. It revives the soul. It causes the heart to rejoice. It is true. Teach them the word that Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16 is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, or correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We teach them the word that John 17.17 17 says sanctifies us and makes us more like God. We teach them the works and the word of God. Spurgeon said that the best education is the education in the best things. So question for us, 
adults, parents. What are we teaching? Are we teaching our children, the young people of this church, are we teaching you the best things? Are we teaching the young people of our church to hope in material goods that will rust, that moths will destroy, that will burn? Or are we teaching them about the maker of heaven and earth in whom we hope? Are we teaching them that security comes from a big bank account, from a 401k? Are we teaching them that security comes from knowing Christ has paid your debt in full by his blood and holds your eternity in his mighty grasp? Are we teaching them that their identity is based in social media and their profile? Are we teaching them that their identity is based in the fact that they were created by God in the image of God? Are we creating, are we teaching them to trust in the Lord? Are we teaching them to trust in themselves? Are we teaching them to trust in the opinions of the majority? Are we teaching them to trust in the truth of God's word? Are we teaching them to live a safe and comfortable life? Or are we leading them to live a life with abandon that calls God Lord and serves him as though he truly is Lord and goes wherever he calls them to go? Are we teaching them that risk is right and risk is worth it when it's for the sake of the gospel, for the magnification of the glory of God? Or are we teaching them to ensure every aspect of their life so there is no risk in their lives? Are we teaching them to hope in their religiosity? Or are we teaching them to hope in the finished work of Christ upon the cross? What are we teaching them? The best education is the education, the best thing, the works and the word of God, may that be what we teach them and what we pass on to this next generation. Verse 6 and 8, our fourth, fourth thing. We saw there's a community responsibility. Secondly, there's a parental responsibility. We saw next there's a specific content for what we should be teaching. And then finally, verse 6 through 8, there is a specific goal for our teaching. A specific goal for our teaching. What's the goal of our children's ministry, youth ministry? What's the goal? What's the, what's the end goal at the end of the day? What's, what's, the, what's the goal of our church and our homes as it relates to the next generation? I mean, we have this overarching goal, right? That everything that we would do would be for the glory of God. That our ultimate and primary goal is to exalt the name of Christ and glorify Him. We think about the next generation. We want to do that. What does that look like? What's our goal within that? It's to pass on to the next generation the gospel. Why? Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. So that they should set their hope in God. It should be what drives us, what fills our heart with zeal, what keeps us awake at night, what wakes us in the morning is a desire to see our children and the children and youth of this church come to trust in the Lord. It's that goal that should cause us as adults to be relentless, to be sacrificial in what we do. That we would say, I will rearrange my schedule for this so that these young people will hear the gospel. I will rearrange and restructure my calendar so that they might grow in the Lord in that area, in that way. It's that zeal, that longing that leads Asaph to say what he said in verse 4, we will not hide the stories. We will not hide what God has done. We will not hide his word, and we will not hide our own failures and our own sins. 
Why? Because our ultimate goal is that they would trust him, that they would hope in him. Not that they would hope in us, not that they would hope in a church, not that they would hope in themselves or any philosophy or any view of man, but that they would hope in the Lord our God. That's our longing. Listen, children, youth. There is no greater hope than you can have in Christ. There is no one greater in whom for you to trust and to cling to and to serve than Jesus Christ. There's lots of things you can hope in. Lots of things you can hope in. There's lots of places you can place your hope. There's lots of people that you can trust in. Lots of people, lots of things you can do and fill your life with. But every one of those things will disappoint you at some time. Every one of those things will run dry. Every one of those things will run short and fall short. Christ and Christ alone is where you must place your hope. Your parents will let you down if they haven't already. Your pastors will let you down if we haven't already. Your friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your sports team, whatever it is, they're all going to let you down. But I stand here today as a testimony to say that my God, Jesus Christ, has never Amen. let me down. He has never failed me. He is faithful. He is mighty. He is awesome. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords in whom I trust. And we long for you to trust him. We long for you to look to him. So church, let's live the gospel for the next generation. Let's tell the gospel to the next generation. Let's look to the gospel every day, over and over, that the next generation might do the same. My grandfather died when I was one I have no memory of him, not one. But you know what I know about my grandfather? He was a man of integrity. He was a man of his word. And he was a deadly shot. Best shot my dad said he'd ever seen. It was a special day for me when dad gave me his side-by-side 12-gauge. Not because I knew my grandfather, but because I know about him. Because Dad passed on stories about him. Dad told me of the things he had done. Dad told me who he was. We have a much greater responsibility, church. Because what we have the opportunity to pass on is not just stories about a man. We have the responsibility and the opportunity to pass on stories, accounts, works, deeds of the Son of Man the one 
who reigns, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ. And I pray that this church will ever be a church that has its gaze fixed keenly, unswervingly on Christ and never loses sight of the next generation. That we would never grow so focused about us and the things of the world that we would lose sight of the next generation that sits among us. Children and youth, I ask you to pray for us. Pray for your parents. Pray for your Sunday school teachers. Pray for your pastors, your deacons. We need your prayers. Adults, we have a community responsibility. Parents, we have a parental responsibility. There's no guarantees involved except for the guarantee that God never fails, that he is faithful and merciful and just. His steadfast love endures forever and his mercies never end. And he's commanded us to do it. May we be obedient. May we be obedient. Let's pray.